else, if you would take your Bibles with me, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we will be in verse 41 and 42 today. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. We're only taking a, a couple verses today, but verses that I think are vitally important and, and rich with significance, especially uh, verse 42, as we have looked over the past few weeks at Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and uh, we have sought to, hopefully have, gleaned from this great preacher, Peter, as he's preached his sermon at Pentecost, great insight for what it means for us as believers, certainly for those who teach the word, but even for those who seek to live out the word, who seek to proclaim the, world, the word to the world around them, uh, learned a great deal from Peter. And we saw in the end the response that was brought about by the Holy Spirit through Peter's preaching. And here in our text today, we see a continuation of that response, a continuation of the results that were brought about through the Holy Spirit by Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So hopefully we can learn from these today. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 42. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much um, for this time that we have today. And already, Lord, has been a joyful time of being together, of, of and enjoying fellowship with one another and encouraging one another, hearing from one another, Lord. And I know that there are many here in this place, Lord, who come uh, from every which way, every which direction, with every which emotion that you can imagine. And Lord, I pray today, regardless of how we have come today, that your word would nourish us, that it would challenge us, that it would sustain us today as we read it, as we study it, as we seek to hear from you in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I uh, had a good friend of mine, uh, his name's Eddie, some of you know Eddie, uh, Eddie Rodriguez, not Eddie Parker, but he is also a good friend of mine. Uh, my friend Eddie Rodriguez is uh, a, a guy who I've always had a great deal of respect for because of his discipline. He's a guy who can see a task and do what's necessary, necessary in order to accomplish the task, and as uh, I saw one time, there was a, a time when Eddie, after having moved from this area up near Indy, I didn't get to see Eddie as often as I would like and as, as often as I used to. And one day, after not seeing Eddie for months, he shows back up. We get together for, uh, for some time just to be together, he and I and some friends. And, and my friend Eddie comes back. And mind you, Eddie, when he left, looked about like me, um, average. Uh, Eddie comes back, and he is just completely swole, as the kids today say. I mean, he's just like, he has to walk like this, you know, like when people get so big that they can't walk normal, right? Uh, he walks like this, right? And I said, oh my goodness, Eddie, what, what happened? What, what'd you do? Like, what, what's going on here? And he explained to me, well, I was at the gym, and I saw this guy about my height, about my, about my build, and he was ripped, and he was in great shape. And he said, I, I just... I wanted to know what the secret was. I wanted to know how to, how to look like he looked. And he went and asked the guy. And he was just as candid as could be. And he said, I want to look like you. How do I make that happen? 
And the guy said, well, it really comes down to two things. And anyone in here, in here who has ever tried to lose weight or get in shape or, or train for any specific thing, you'll know that there are basically, we're going to boil it down, two things that matter with regards to getting in shape, with regards to getting swole, with regards to losing weight, whatever it might be. And what are those two things? Diet and exercise, right? And so Eddie heard from this guy, it's all about diet and exercise. He said, I go to the gym every single day, seven days a week. I don't miss a day. Uh, This is my workout regimen. This is how many hours I'm here. This is the diet I eat. And he laid it all out for him. And he told him, he said, look, if you follow this plan, you will look like me. So long as you stay disciplined, so long as you follow this plan. And indeed, Eddie, being as disciplined as he was, followed the plan and came back swole, in shape, looking great. And I bring this up to say that as human beings, if we desire to be in peak physical shape, if we desire to to get swole, as it were, or, or get in shape or train, it matters what we take in and how we exercise. Diet and exercise are essential for a healthy physical life. There's no way around it. We don't always like to hear that, but that's just the way it is. You cannot be in good physical shape without proper diet and exercise. And so today, my uh, my intention is to take that earthly understanding, this physical understanding of physical fitness, of the necessity of diet and exercise and what a right health regimen looks like and what it results in, and apply that to the Christian life today. As you can see from my title, my point today is to lay out for us what is the proper regimen for a healthy Christian. And I think that we see, though not an exhaustive, completely expansive sort of uh, diet and exercise plan, I think we see in a rather basic and simple form a pretty healthy start to what an appropriate regimen for a healthy Christian looks like here in Acts chapter forty, chapter 2, verse 42 especially. These two verses show for us what the church was up to from its very inception, from the very beginning. As we, as we learned just a few weeks ago, we went from 120 people in the upper room to, as we saw last week, 3,000 converts in one day. In one day, the church went from 120 to 3,000. This is essentially the birth of the church. And what we see here is the church in its infancy, the church brand new from its inception. And we see in this a framework for what the church ought to be doing today. By looking at what it was that the church was doing from the moment of inception, we can see what is a helpful, healthy regiment for Christians today and for the church today. And so I have for us essentially four keys for Christian fitness. And uh, this is dealing with spiritual fitness, mind you, not uh, anything else. And these four keys for Christian fitness that we're going to look at today that we see from verse 42 in Acts 2 are the word of God, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. And if you simply read through this passage, you would probably guess those would be the four things because they're laid out rather clearly in this text. But my hope is that as we look into each one individually, we can see how we as believers benefit from it and need it in our lives. As we go through each of these key elements of a healthy life, I want us to take a sort of health assessment, as it were. And I know these kinds of things aren't, all, aren't always fun. We know from, from personal experience that taking health assessments, whether it's to uh, get life insurance or whether your work requires it or whatever the case may be, it's not always fun to assess how we're doing, uh, because we know we're probably going to hear bad news. 
We need to cut back on our sugar. We need to eat less fats. We need to get a little more exercise, go for walks, whatever the case may be. But it's good for us to, as believers, take a sort of health assessment if we want to be healthy Christians, though it hurts, it's good for us. And so that's what I intend for us to do today. And I want to start with the first key for Christian fitness, that being the word of God. We see in verse 42 at the very beginning, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Here we have the very first thing. The first thing we see about those who came to faith in Christ in this amazing moment when 3,000 people came to faith in Christ and the church was born, what we see that the very first thing they did, the very first thing that they are known for, the priority for these Christians was that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? It is the word of God. We're able to substitute the apostles' teaching, this phrase, apostles' teaching, for the word of God. Why? Because that's what the New Testament is. The New Testament is the apostles' teaching. Christ gave the apostles the authority to to teach and to write these things down, and their letters were more than just like letters we write to one another, but rather this teaching becomes for us, as it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the very word of God breathed out. And so to say that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching is more than to say that they were just devoted to good teachers. The implication for us is not that we just listen very carefully, that we devote ourselves to a specific teacher or pastor or theologian. There are plenty of people that do that. That's not the point. And in fact, doing so can get yourself in a lot of trouble if you devote yourself to a specific teacher. You're liable to be let down quite quickly and quite dramatically if you are devoting yourself to specific teachers. The implication here for us is that we devote ourselves to the word of God. We're to devote ourselves not to teachers, but rather to God's word as he has given it by the apostles and by the prophets. We read that they devoted themselves, the early church, to the teaching. And some of your Bibles might say something different than devoted. They might say continued steadfastly if you're reading the King James. Or it might say they continually devoted themselves. And, and I think this is a helpful way of understanding what, what the author, what Luke is seeking to get across here. Because the point is not just that they read the, the apostles' teaching, that they heard the apostles' teaching and said, boom, that's good, give it our stamp of approval, and then that's it. No, I'm, I'm devoted to that. That's what I believe. That's what I like. That's what's good, right? The idea of being devoted to the apostles' teaching was more than just a one-time commitment, a stamp given of approval. It was a regular, daily, continual devotion to the apostles' teaching. It was something that they were steadfastly and continually devoted to, continually walking in, living in, according to the apostles' teaching their devotion to the word of god to the apostles teaching is far greater than just a simple devotion to uh, what we might think of the way americans are devoted to the constitution if you were to ask the average american are you are you devoted to are you committed to the constitution of the united states most americans would say yes i am i think it's a good document i think the the nation ought to be guided by it it ought to dictate what we do as a country, how our laws are to be organized and created and, and upheld by the court systems and by law enforcement and all these things. Yes, I'm, I am, as an American, devoted to the Constitution in that way. 
But then, if you ask almost all Americans to quote for you a portion of the Constitution, they probably won't be able to do it. In fact, if you ask for three or four amendments to the Constitution, I doubt they'll be able to tell you what three or four are. They can maybe get one and two, you know, the one about speech and guns. Right? I got those down. But all the rest, I don't, I don't really know. They're, they're there, they're important, but I don't really know them. Right? This is sometimes, as believers, the way we are devoted to the Word of God. We think it's good. We think it ought to be what our pastors commit themselves to and teach the way judges and the Supreme Court commit themselves to the Constitution. We think that it ought to be the guiding principle for Christians. But then when we really consider, well, how often are we devoting ourselves to it truly? Are we reading the Word of God? Are we taking in the Word of God? Are we studying the Word of God? Do we actually know what the Word of God says? Or have we just given it our stamp of approval and moved along? It's right that this should be listed first in the activities of the newly formed church, the activities that they were engaged in, because indeed, this is foundational to all the rest of what it means to be a believer. The word of God itself is the foundation to all that we do as believers. It is the key to everything, gives us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. Paul makes this point clear in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2, 19 through 21, Paul says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What we see here is, is what is the foundation for the church? What is our foundation as believers? It is the word of God. The, uh, the apostles and the prophets, as they have written down for us, that they've been inspired by the Holy Spirit and written for us the very word of God. This is our foundation, Christ himself being the cornerstone. For indeed, all scripture speaks to Christ. It was well said by one man named John Rippon, and if you're not familiar with that name, don't feel bad, I wasn't either. Uh, when he wrote his hymn back in 1787, How Firm a Foundation, you might be familiar with his hymn. The first verse of his hymn says this, I think says it so beautifully and rightly, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. See, the Bible contains all that we need. It is sufficient for all things for the believer. Not only is it sufficient, but it is necessary for all things as believers. I would say that the Bible is essentially the foundational diet for believers. When you, you think about like the, the food pyramid, right? And those foods that are foundational for having a healthy life and for getting the nutrition that you Need. I think that pyramid's kind of defunct now. I don't really know, but uh, it's a circle now. Yeah, that's right. It's like a plate, right? Uh, well, our plate as believers or our pyramid is founded upon the word of God. It is our main sustenance. Indeed, it is all that we need for life and godliness. We must be taking in God's word if we are to live as healthy believers. We're to be reading God's word. 
We're to be studying it. We're to be applying it to our lives. We're to be sitting under the teaching of God's word through right preaching. Even in the songs that we sing, it is good for us to sing of God, to sing of the truths revealed in Scripture. Christians ought to be taking in a regular and healthy diet of God's word. And there are a whole host of reasons, right? We could exhaust a list of why Christians ought to study the Bible. I mean, number one, we're commanded to, right? Uh, that ought to be first and, and foremost. But I'll just present for us three simple reasons today. If, you, if you're wondering why is it so important that I study the Bible, well, here's three reasons and not an exhaustive list. Three reasons that we ought to be devoted to the word of God. Number one, to know what our duty is to God and to the world. If we want to live as believers, as faithful Christians in the world, we must have a source for our marching orders. We must know what it looks like to live in the world as faithful Christians. And there's only one source for that, and that is the Word of God. If you're not reading the Word of God, if you're not devoted to these things, then you're not learning, you're not devoting yourself to the only source that you have of what being a believer looks like. So for our duty to God and to the world, we study His Word. Number two, we, we devote ourselves to the Word of God so that we might know God and celebrate our redemption that He has accomplished. We study God's word so that we might remind ourselves of the gospel, of the good news of redemption, of what Christ has done for us. We regularly need to be reminded of this. As Aaron said this morning, we come each and every week and we hear the gospel. And guess what, church family? Each and every week, we need the gospel. We need to hear the gospel each and every week because we're human beings and we're prone to forget. We're prone to apply something other than that to ourselves or sometimes to others. But church family, we need to hear the gospel, the good news of redemption, that Christ became sin, even though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, that through him we have been adopted as children of God, as sons, and all the benefits that are associated with that. It's good to be reminded of those things. Third reason, we study God's word, we devote ourselves to the scriptures, to remind ourselves of the hope and the future that we have and to bolster our assurance in Jesus Christ. I oftentimes find it to be the case that Christians that most struggle with doubt, most struggle with a lack of assurance, wondering, am I truly saved? Am I a Christian? Oftentimes, their devotion is not to the word of God. They are not taking in God's word. They are not reading it. They are not applying it to their lives. And so often that leaves us in a state of confusion leaves us in a state of despair and leaves us lacking in assurance and in hope as christians we need to be feasting regularly on the word of god as the main staple of our diet and if the word of god and reading it taking it in being being filled with it is our as our source of sustenance as that's how we are to feast then i would contend to you that scripture memorization serves for us as snacks on the go. Scripture memorization is, is super, super important for believers, and yet something that the overwhelming majority of believers do not practice. But I can tell you of the benefits of having God's word hidden in your heart, that you can be anywhere, and when you're feeling down, when you're feeling discouraged, or even if you're just feeling bored, you know what you can do? You can rip open a little snack of God's word and remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself of the truth that he has given us and revealed in his word. I can tell you the, the benefits of having 
these snacks on the go. If you're a parent in here today, you know the benefits. Man, my waiting room experience has been completely salvaged, redeemed by snacks, right? You take kids to the auto parts store or, or to the repair shop or you take them to the doctor's office and you're sitting there in the waiting room and, and what is there to do but to get upset and get anxious and run around? Man, snacks solve everything. Lucky Charms, man, good to go. I sit here for hours eating these Lucky Charms. The Word of God being memorized hidden away in our hearts, tucked away so that anytime we can regurgitate that, we can remind ourselves of the good news of the gospel is healthy for us as believers. And I would say also that the benefits that it serves in things like evangelism. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're evangelizing someone and you frankly can't remember the word of God and you don't have a Bible handy? I we all have it on our phone now, which is a blessing. It's a good thing. We can break that out and read the word of God. But I can tell you as as a, uh, someone who has been in this situation, it is extremely beneficial. It is extremely helpful to just, in the moment, be able to say, you know what? The Bible says, Paul says in Romans, that there is none that's righteous, no, not one. That no one understands, no one seeks for God. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? The wages of that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some of you might recognize those verses. It's called the Romans Road. And it's really easy to memorize. And you can, quick as that, share the gospel to someone straight out of the word of God. Sometimes the classics are the best. Learn the Romans road. Do it so that you can evangelize to others, so that you can share with other people the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And so I know this is a long time on one point, but let's take an assessment of ourselves. Are you continually devoting yourself to God's word? And I don't mean do you think God's word is important, Everyone in here is probably going to raise their hand to that. I'm saying, are you devoted to it? Are you reading it regularly? When you have time in your homes, when you have time in your workplace, what are you devoted to? It's very easy to be devoted to things like YouTube or Facebook. Those things profit us nothing. In fact, I think they're, if we were honest, probably serve our detriment. Why not devote ourselves to the word of God? Are you devoted to God's word? Are you submitting to the authority of Scripture in your life on a daily basis? Are you being renewed by the gospel daily, reminding yourselves of what Christ has done in redeeming us according to God's foreordained plan? It's good for us to do that. No one in here has ever reminded themselves of the gospel from Scripture, has ever read Romans, has ever read Galatians, and then gone, man, that was boring, that was lame. It's good to be reminded of the gospel. It fills us with joy and hope and assurance. Matthew 4, 4, in Matthew 4, 4, Christ says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is our sustenance. This is our diet as believers. If we are to live healthy lives, we must be engaging in feasting regularly on a healthy diet of God's word. We must be taking in his word as an essential part of a healthy diet. So then we come to point number two, and uh, this is kind of my own way of breaking it down, but I would say that the word of God is the diet for believers. This is our diet. So then we come now after establishing what our diet ought to be to our exercise. So the next points I would say are a part of Christian exercise, point number two being fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The Greek word used here for fellowship is the word koinonia, a word that 
maybe you've heard before, maybe you're familiar with, maybe not. But it's a fascinating Greek word. It's a word that is indicating a sense of togetherness, a, a bond with one another. It's a word that's a, applied uniquely to specific situations, not just to friendly interactions with people that we meet throughout our day. Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss says of this word that it is used in a marriage contract where the husband and wife agree to a joint participation in all the necessities of life. The key idea of that partnership, of it is partnership, of a possessing things in common, which is exactly what we see from the New Testament church here in Acts 2 and later on in Acts chapter 4, right? That this is a part of what koinonia means. It is a togetherness. It is a, it is a joint participation in all things, a joint participation in life. It's not just a joint participation in an hour and a half on Sunday morning and maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours throughout the week. It's a joint participation in life, life together. Now, I'm not saying that all of our relationships uh, with one another in the church should look the same as the relationship of a husband and wife. Praise God, that's not what I'm saying, right? But what I am saying is that the relationship we have with one another, one another ought to look a little bit different than the relationship we have with people on the bus, with people on our flight to other places, people in the grocery line, where yes, we're there and I know they're there, but basically we're all a part of this experience, getting forward, going to the next place together, but that is the extent of our relationship. We are essentially acquaintances, business associates at best. Oftentimes, that's the way it looks in the church. Where koinonia, where this kind of fellowship is lacking, the church feels less like a family and more like a business, more like a country club. And that's not what the church is. This is not intending to point us to a specific act that the early Christians were engaging in, that there was this one particular time of fellowship that they did every week, but then that was it. It's pointing us to a lifestyle. The idea that we as Christians ought to live differently than the world each and every day with one another. The fellowship enjoyed among Christians ought to be unique in the world, and it ought to be unique because of what binds us. What binds us, we see in 1 John in the introduction as John writes, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And he says, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what sets Christian fellowship apart from all the rest. That fellowship with one another is significant because it unites us all together in fellowship with God and with Jesus Christ, his son. In the early church, in fact, this kind of, of fellowship, this koinonia, served as a sort of passive apologetic to the world around, to the culture around. So that the culture might not have been all that interested in the teachings that they had, might not have been all that interested in hearing about Christ, but one thing that was undeniable and that is seen throughout historical texts is that the Christians were a people who loved and cared for and lived life with each other. And that there was none who had need. 
We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. But what we see is this kind of unique fellowship, this koinonia that was found in the early church. And I think as Christians, we ought to seek to demonstrate that same kind of fellowship. We ought to seek to imitate this kind of koinonia. And one of the best ways to know clearly how this kind of fellowship is to look for us is to look at the one another statements in the New Testament. We've looked at these before, and we've looked at them in the context of church membership, and I think they're extremely applicable there. But I want us to just consider a few of these one another statements and begin to see the picture of what this kind of fellowship looks like with one another in the church. We see throughout the New Testament that we are commanded to instruct one another, to serve one another through love, to carry one another's burdens, to submit to one another in the fear of Christ, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, be hospitable to one another without complaining, Peter says in 1 Peter. I think he just had to add that last part on because he knows us so well, right? This is what Christian fellowship ought to look like. We have this place downstairs called the Fellowship Hall, but Fellowship is not limited to that place, nor is it limited to this place. Fellowship among believers is a lifestyle. So really the question comes down to how well do we love one another? That's the ultimate question. That is what binds these believers together is the love that they have for one another. It is love that causes them to instruct one another, serve one another, carry one another's burdens. And so our Health assessment leads us to these questions. Do you love one another like this? The brothers and sisters that you have here in this room today, do you care for one another in this way? Do you interact with each other like a family or more like business associates, more like coworkers? Are you willing to get your hands dirty with each other and in each other's lives and sacrifice for one another in that way? Because that's what it takes. And we know because we're human beings that human beings are messy. And if you really want to lean into people's lives to love them like a family, sometimes your hands are going to get messy. Sometimes there's going to be friction. There's going to be hurt feelings. Sometimes there's going to be bitterness and anger and frustration. But what there's also going to be is a deepened sense of love and affection for one, one another and a unity that is that is equipped and fostered by the Holy Spirit as we seek to obey the commands of Christ. Francis Schaeffer wrote a small little booklet called The Mark of the Christian. It's a really, really good booklet to read, really short, really easy read. And in this book, he makes the argument, and he makes it from John 13, that as Christians, the world has the right to look at us and judge whether or not we truly are believers, whether or not what Christ has said is true, according to how we love one another. And he makes this, this assertion based on John 13, verse 34 through 35, where John, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. So you also are to love one another. And then he says in verse 35, by this, what is the this? It's the love that we have for one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So these questions get a little bit harder, don't they? If the world were to look at the way we love one another in the church, 
Will the world conclude that the Bible is true? That there's something unique about Christianity? Or would they say, I can get the same thing at the Y? I can get the same thing at a country club. I can get the same thing at a book club. If what we have to offer here as far as fellowship, as far as koinonia goes, is no better than what is found in the world, then we are failing. We are to love one another in a way that the world would see the love that we have for one another, the care that we have for one another, and see it in action and know that we belong to Christ. Point number three, the breaking of bread. This next next source of exercise for the believer who seeks to live a healthy Christian life is the breaking of bread here in verse 42. This was the next thing that they devoted themselves to. Now this this phrase, the breaking of bread, could be taken in, in one of two ways. And there are some scholars, some theologians who lean towards the idea that this is speaking specifically about the Lord's Supper. And then there are some that say, no, it's really just speaking more generically about breaking bread together as a meal, sharing meals with one another. And I think I would probably fall with R.C. Sproul, who says, I think it's both. Because in the early church, the, the fellowship meal that they had, the breaking of bread together in the form of eating together, sharing a meal with one another, having this kind of koinonia, was so closely tied to the Lord's Supper that it was in these fellowship meals that they would have that they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, that the bread would be broken in the way that we see Christ imitating in the upper room. This is clearly a further example of the kind of koinonia that the early church had. And both of these aspects are important. We recognize that the Lord's Supper, as we take it every single week, is a means of grace that God has given us, that we celebrate what Christ has done, that we partake in Christ as we take of the bread and the wine, and we benefit from this as believers. But we also know that the kind of hospitality that we see pictured here is also a benefit to us as believers. It is an extension of this fellowship that we are to have with one another, inviting people into our homes, going into other people's homes, having a meal together. Because there's something special about eating a meal together, isn't there? A certain kind of unique fellowship that is found there and food shared. There's something special, there's something unique about that kind of hospitality, the very same hospitality that we're called to show to one another. And I think that is a big picture of what we see here in the early church, that they demonstrated this kind of hospitality. As we see later on, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread, where? In their homes. That their fellowship was not limited to when they were gathered together out in public, but it extended out even into their homes, being together, living with one another, breaking bread together. I think we see from this passage the importance of hospitality in the church. This is an an aspect, in fact, of stewarding what God has given us. Has God given you a home to live in and food to eat? I hope the answer is yes, and if not, please come talk to me. I would love to share some of mine with you. But if God has given you these things, then what are these things if they are not gifts given by God to you in order for you to steward, in order for you to use for his glory to expand his kingdom? Church family, if you're the only one who reaps the benefits of your house, if hospitality that you have is not being shared with anyone, then are you truly stewarding all that God has given you well? 
I would argue not. You see, we can give our money to the church and we can uh, come to the church once a week, maybe twice a week and give of our time in that way. But we ought to take everything that we have, take account of all that we have, all of our gifts, all of our time, all of our energy and all of our possessions. And we ought to ask the question, how is it that I can steward this well and use it for God's glory? And one of the answers to the question of how we can do that is found in hospitality, having people into our homes. Maybe, maybe that's not the case for you. Maybe you're like, no, nah, I just don't know if I could do that. Find other ways to be hospitable. Take people out for a meal. Go get some coffee together. Be together with one another. But we have no excuse not to be engaging in these things. One thing that I, I hear often uh, is, is a question I hear it in this church and in every other church, the question of, and it's a good question, how can I serve in the church? That's a good thing to desire. And yes, there are some times when people say, I don't know how I can serve. I'm not good with children. I'm not gifted with technology. I'm not a very effective teacher. How can I serve in the church? I would contend that at least one thing that I would tell everyone, if you wanna know how can you serve in the church and you haven't thought of anything else yet, this is the way you can serve in the church. Practice hospitality. Look for someone in the church who maybe you don't know as well and you would like to get to know better and invite them into your home. Take them out for a meal, share coffee together, share food together, share life together. Because it is a sacrifice to do that. I know it is, we all know it is. I don't wanna stand up here and make it seem like it's so easy to just have people into your house all the time. It's not, it takes work, it takes energy. Therefore, it is a good avenue for us to consider of how we can serve the church by showing hospitality to one another, by fellowshipping with one another, by serving one another in this way. And so this is our next health assessment question. Are you practicing hospitality? Are you joyfully sharing all that you have with one another? I can't tell you as a, as a pastor how happy it makes me when I hear people in the church talking about, yeah, last Last night we were over at the, uh, this family's house or this night I went out and got coffee with this guy or had breakfast with this person. We got together, we spent the whole day together. I love hearing about those things. I love hearing about those things the same way I'm sure my mom likes to hear when I say, yeah, I got together with my brother and we had a great time. We went and got lunch together. We went and had breakfast. We went hiking, we did whatever. It brings me a great sense of joy to hear of these kinds of hospitality, to hear that fellowship is happening in the church. And so this is our assessment question. Are you practicing this kind of hospitality? Are you serving and sacrificing for others in this way? And then finally, the fourth thing that we see, the fourth key for Christian fitness is that of prayer. The last thing mentioned here by Luke is prayer. The early church, as we see, was a praying church. We see it from here as they were devoting themselves to it, but we see it elsewhere as the apostles were uh, being sent out, as Paul and Barnabas were being sent out, what did the church do? They prayed together. They laid hands on them and they prayed for them. Whenever the church was being persecuted, what did they do? They got together and they prayed and they prayed for boldness. We see in the example of the early church, a church that prayed together. And I would argue that this kind of Praying ought to be done two ways. It ought to be done individually, that we at home, to ourselves, at work, in our cars, we ought to be praying to the Lord. We ought to be spending time with the Lord in that way, intimately, in your prayer closet, in your bedroom, whatever the case may be, that is a good and right thing for you to do as a Christian. 
But I think also, as we see from the example in Acts, we are to do so corporately as well. We're to gather together to pray with each other and for one another if we are to live as a healthy church and healthy Christians. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. And then if we ask ourselves some of these assessment questions, the question really becomes, how often do we pray at all? Are you praying regularly? You know, the idea of praying without ceasing sounds completely impossible to us because we don't even pray with any regularity. Are you praying regularly? And the next question I have, and this is an important question, and it's frankly a question that I know the answer to. What, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ in here today, what barriers are standing in between you and praying? What barriers are there? Let me tell you the answer. None. As believers, with Christ as our mediator, we have access to God whenever we would like. We can, wherever we are at, whatever we are doing, pray. And you know what's going to happen? The Lord's going to hear our prayers. And yet, even with that instant access, our prayer lives are not what they ought to be. We don't pray. We don't come to the Lord in this way. We aren't devoted to these things. A healthy church is a praying church. And all of this, as, a, as we read there, that a healthy church is a praying church. I want to emphasize as we begin to close that all of these things, all of these aspects of Christian fitness are intended to be done within the context of the church. I read at the beginning verse 41, and I think it's important for us to read verse 41, both for one, because what we see in verse 42 is a continuation of what happens in 41, that in 41 we see 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, and then what does 42 start with? And it's a continuation. 3,000 people came to faith in Christ and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. But in verse 41, what we see here is, it says, as Luke says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. To what were they added? They were added to the church. Christianity, as you ought to know by now if you've sat under my preaching for very long, is not a, a lone ranger game. Christianity, be, Christianity is to be done together in community with one another. It is to be done in the context of the local church. Christianity done right is Christianity lived and practiced and exercised in community with other believers. Tony Morita says in his commentary on Acts, he says, if people are out of fellowship with Christ, they will be out of fellowship with the church. And if people are out of fellowship with Jesus' people, that is an indicator that they may be out of fellowship with Jesus. And these are harsh words. But frankly, I don't think Tony Morita goes far enough. I don't know if he's harsh enough. I would say if you are living out of step with your brothers and sisters in Christ, then I think your salvation is seriously in question. If you are rejecting the unity of believers, commitment to them, all of these one another's that we read only a portion of today, then the question has to be, are you even concerned with obedience to God's word? And Jesus himself says, those who love me will keep my commands. All of these things are to be practiced by individuals, praying, 
fellowship, being devoted to God's word, breaking of bread. They are to be practiced by individuals, but in the context of the local church. The purpose of this assessment today as we ask ourselves these questions, whether we are devoted to the word of God, whether we are devoted and committed to the kind of fellowship that the early church had, whether we are devoted to prayer and the breaking of bread the way we ought, is not intended, intended to leave us feeling defeated. So we would walk away from this place feeling like I am a horrible Christian because I don't practice these things the way I ought. Because church family, let me tell you, none of us practice these things the way we ought. None of us practice these things perfectly. And my, my point in preaching in this way is not to heap guilt on you and make you leave here feeling guilty. But my point is to point us to Christ. All of us knows that we fall short in these ways. All of us knows that we are not living as healthy as we ought as Christians, that we're not practicing these things the way we ought. Admit that, and that's a good thing to admit but then turn to Christ, recognizing that he is our salvation. Our salvation is found in him, not in obedience, not in how well we perform, not in how well we engage in a proper Christian diet and exercise of God's word and fellowship and prayer. We are called to these things, but we are not saved by practicing these things well. We are saved by Christ and him alone. Christ's righteousness is ours when we trust in him and we will stand before God one day judged on that and that alone, whether or not we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. So then the purpose of my preaching in this way today is not to run you down, not to heap guilt on you for the drive home, but rather to encourage you in the proper regiment for a Christian, for your sake and for the church's sake. And the same way your doctor, when you go to the doctor and he tells you, you know what, you really need to you really need to eat better. You really need to exercise more. He's not doing that to make you feel like a, like a doofus. He's not doing that to put you down. He's doing that because the doctor genuinely cares that you would be healthy. That's why he's a doctor. My point today is to say, church family, I want you to be healthy and I want the church to be healthy. And these things will help bring that about. Let us be devoted to these things. It is Christ that drives us to these things, that drives us to this kind of fellowship and makes it so remarkable as we have already read in 1 John 1, verse three, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. This is what makes our fellowship unique, that we have been brought by God into fellowship with him and with his son. And now church family, from this place of being redeemed, being declared righteous in Christ Jesus, let us exercise these things. Let us take in a healthy diet of the word of God. Let us practice fellowship, koinonia, love for one another, and prayer the way we ought. In light of redemption, this fellowship is to be so beautiful. All of this in light of Christ. Let's pray.